On March 21, 1556, Thomas Cranmer stood on the pulpit of St. Mary's Church in London. No longer the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cranmer was now Queen Mary Tudor's prisoner, and in front of a large crowd, he was set to make his seventh recantation for the sin of steering England toward Protestantism. Cranmer had been an engineer of Henry VIII's cataclysmic divorce from Mary's mother and had nearly had Mary herself killed. But now, after decades of hostility, Mary was queen, and Cranmer would finally die at the stake. During his previous six recantations, Cranmer had appeared solemn and scared. He characterized himself as a blasphemer, persecutor, and insulter. He was responsible for the schism which split the whole kingdom. Finally, he condemned himself as the most wicked all the earth has ever borne. But as he stood on the pulpit today, prepared to recant yet again, something felt different. A tranquil, slightly mischievous look rested on his face. He realized he still had one card to play. He would be consumed by flames. That was unavoidable. But by the time his corpse was pulled from the ashes, what should have been Mary's greatest triumph would be remembered as her ultimate disgrace. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. Today, we're closing out our season on the bloody female rulers of the Middle Ages and Renaissance. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. This is our second episode on Queen Mary I who ruled over England from 1553 to 1558. Last week, we discussed her turbulent childhood, which pitted her against her father, King Henry VIII, and his myriad marriages. This week, we'll cover the circumstances that finally led Mary's ascension to the throne. We'll look at how she squandered the respect of her subjects by sentencing her perceived enemies to death, earning her the infamous and enduring nickname Bloody Mary. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. By 1553, Mary Tudor was 37 years old and not yet Queen of England. But she had already lived through a lifetime's worth of scandals. During her parents' messy divorce, her father had completely separated England from the Catholic Church. Then, he'd beheaded or divorced a series of new wives for failing to produce a male heir. 
Henry's behavior had put Mary in the direct crosshairs of two powerful men, Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland. Together, they conspired to name Dudley's daughter-in-law, Jane Grey, as queen, usurping Mary's claim to the throne. The decision was wildly unpopular, and many refused to recognize Jane Grey as their queen. They wanted Mary Tudor. Because of her tenacity and principles, Mary had widespread support throughout the country. This posed a threat to Dudley and Cranmer. They needed to stop Mary before she gained too big of a following, and they would do it by whatever means necessary. On July 1st, 1553, Mary was tipped off that a group of Dudley's henchmen were coming to arrest her. She and a band of loyal subjects made a daring escape to one of her secluded country estates in East Anglia, about 100 miles away from London. After leaving, Mary wrote to the royal council, staking her claim to the British throne and promising that she intended to seize it. Five days later, Mary had the support of some of East Anglia's aristocrats. While her plot came together, she decided to move to Framlingham Castle, the most secure and impregnable fortress in the region. During the move, a crowd of locals gathered to catch a glimpse of her. They not only showed their support, but offered to protect her, their queen. But that support meant little against Dudley's army of 3,000 men, plus the entire supply of royal weaponry at his disposal. And while Mary may have enjoyed the support of some nobles, the majority of England's noblemen remained loyal to Jane Grey and Dudley. But their loyalty was mostly out of self-preservation. And if Mary could gain the upper hand, they might decide to switch allegiances. In the town of Ipswich, the noblemen initially declared their loyalty to Jane Grey. Days later, however, one of Mary's servants staked out a spot in the town's bustling marketplace and proclaimed Mary the hereditary Queen of England. The crowd responded with cheers of encouragement and several denunciations of Jane Grey. After witnessing Mary's unshakable public support, the Ipswich nobles shifted their alliance to Mary. Better to join the bandwagon than face an uprising. From there, the dominoes continued to fall. In Norwich, the noblemen sent an army and weapons to support Mary's cause. Meanwhile, a fleet of five ships full of soldiers who had been en route to fight a different battle suddenly disembarked to fight for another cause, Lady Mary Tudor. It was a rapid and stunning reversal from just a week before. Now, nearly everyone with money and power was aligned with Mary, and many of Dudley's soldiers were scared enough to either defect or abandon the fight altogether. The final blow came on July 20th. The majority of Dudley's royal council arrived at Mary's castle, begged for forgiveness, and personally pledged their loyalty. Dudley and Lady Jane Grey were finished. After all the backstabbing, drama, and threats, no actual battles would be fought for the crown. None were necessary. That evening, Dudley finally gave in and admitted defeat. 
the proclamation was relayed by royal trumpeters and town criers. Mary was the new Queen of England. The news was met with celebration. The bells of every church rang for two days straight. In London, one could hear an almost never-ending chorus of God Save Queen Mary. One ambassador recalled, From a distance, the earth must have looked like Mount Etna. The people are mad with joy, feasting and singing, and the streets crowded all night long. Before Mary's official Westminster Abbey coronation, she gathered the members of her royal council for an unofficial ceremony. She swore an oath to faithfully represent her subjects and implored her advisors to do the same. She went on to describe her duties as queen in such humble and reverent language that her advisors were taken aback. It was a far cry from the bluster and arrogance of her father and the self-serving ambition of Lord Dudley. Mary truly seemed to have her subjects' best interests at heart, and the people knew it. In late July, Mary began her 100-mile journey from Framlingham Castle to London. Along the way, she was greeted by throngs of well-wishers proclaiming their undying loyalty and nobles showering her with gifts, including a golden heart inscribed with the words, The Heart of the People. Outside London, she was joined by her 20-year-old sister Elizabeth and a retinue of loyal followers. Finally, on the evening of August 3rd, Mary and her nearly 10,000-strong procession arrived in London. As Mary made her triumphant entrance, she was met by chants of Vox Populi, Vox Dei, Latin for The Voice of the People is the Voice of God. It was one of the grandest spectacles the city had ever witnessed. Historian Anna Whitelock described Mary's eye-catching outfit. A gown of purple velvet, its sleeves embroidered in gold. Beneath it, she wore a kirtle of purple satin, thickly set with large pearls, with a gold and jeweled chain around her neck and a dazzling headdress on her head. She was the very essence of British royalty, and the people loved it. When the crowds finally dispersed, Mary got to business. She immediately ordered the release of several political and religious prisoners and restored their ranks and estates. She assembled an official council, composed mainly of loyal Catholics, and for good measure, a few councillors who had supported Jane Grey. With abundant support and a clear mandate to serve her people, Mary's reign was off to an auspicious start. But beneath the veneer of public service... Mary had another goal in mind, to reinstate Catholicism as the country's official religion and take revenge against a particularly nasty enemy, Thomas Cranmer. Coming up, Mary spins her goodwill into universal loathing in just over a year. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In late July 1553, 37-year-old Mary Tudor finally became the Queen of England, the first woman to rule the country. She enjoyed immense public support, and her background and education made her perfect for the role. But her Catholic faith put her at odds with the English Reformation undertaken by her father, King Henry VIII. Now Queen, Mary immediately released several political prisoners and wasted no time finding new ones to take their places. Even before Mary's triumphant return to London, she'd had John Dudley arrested. Joining him a short time later were Jane Grey and her husband John Dudley's son. While imprisoned, Dudley begged Mary's forgiveness and loudly denounced his Protestant faith. He claimed that Catholicism was the very right and true way. Unfortunately, his desperate pleas fell on deaf ears. On August 22nd, he was beheaded. A more difficult problem was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. Mary knew she couldn't immediately arrest the most senior religious figure in England. It would seem capricious. And the religious tensions in London were already reaching a boiling point. Although there were many Protestants across England who supported Cranmer, there were also a significant number of devoted Catholics. And with Mary's tacit blessing, they grew increasingly bold. The Catholic iconography that had been outlawed under Henry VIII almost immediately began to reappear around London. And once again, Catholic masses were being held in the open. This set off multiple confrontations between Catholics and Protestants throughout the city. In one instance, a Catholic chaplain was pulled out of the pulpit by vagabonds, and one threw a dagger at him. As the religious war turned violent, Mary was forced to issue a proclamation urging her subjects to live in quiet sort and Christian charity. To help ease the fears of the Protestants, She also promised that any religious decrees would reflect the will of the people and would have to be approved by Parliament. But while Mary was urging patience and peace, she secretly sought to reinstate Catholicism as England's official religion. During this same time, she wrote a letter to the Pope asking forgiveness for the conflicts that happened during her father's reign. To Mary's surprise, the Pope was two steps ahead of her. He'd already appointed a British cardinal to spearhead the reconciliation. The cardinal immediately began petitioning Mary and members of Parliament to reinstate Catholicism as the country's official religion. Unfortunately, this move backfired. The cardinal's behavior was so abrasive that he alienated many within the government. Mary was forced to put the mission on hold. And in the meantime, she turned her focus toward her 20-year-old half-sister, Elizabeth. Many of Mary's closest advisors feared that Elizabeth might try to usurp her, 
However, Mary was less concerned with Elizabeth's political motives than her religious ones. It seemed like Mary wouldn't be satisfied until Elizabeth proclaimed herself a practicing Catholic. Elizabeth did attend Mass at Mary's urging, but it was fairly obvious that she was only doing it to placate her sister. She couldn't keep up the Catholic charade for long. Rather than run afoul of the new queen, Elizabeth eventually asked Mary's permission to leave the royal court entirely and move to the country. Mary happily agreed, and with her Protestant sister out of the way, Mary was finally emboldened to go after her nemesis, Thomas Cranmer. Only a few months into Mary's reign, Cranmer was arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London on charges of treason. But he wouldn't die swiftly like John Dudley. Mary wanted revenge. Their saga would play out dramatically and publicly over the next several years. But for the immediate future, Mary had other things on her agenda. With Cranmer in chains, she could fully throw herself into planning her official coronation. On October 1st, 1553, Mary was crowned at Westminster Abbey. Kneeling before the bishop with a sword in one hand and a scepter in the other, the crown was laid atop Mary's head. She sat upon the throne where a series of nobles paid homage to her as their new monarch. The echoes of God Save the Queen reverberated across the entire country. With the pageantry out of the way, Mary initiated her first session of Parliament four days after her coronation. Her first order of business was to reverse the decree that her parents' marriage had been invalid. She also instituted a series of religious reforms that would be the first step towards restoring Catholicism as the country's official religion. However, for now, most of the reforms were relatively innocuous. Mary simply legalized the Catholic practices that had been outlawed, such as conducting Mass in Latin. If Mary wanted to ensure England was a Catholic country, she would need to have a Catholic heir. And for that, she needed to find a Catholic husband. Throughout her life, Mary's father had set her up with various princes and nobles as a means of forging alliances. And now that it was time to find her own husband, Mary used a surprisingly similar strategy. She wanted a spouse who could produce a Catholic heir and expand the boundaries of her kingdom. After a not particularly exhaustive search, she chose 26-year-old Prince Philip of Spain. Philip's father was Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who also happened to be Mary's first cousin. Leaving that aside, the match was perfect. Philip stood to inherit the most powerful empire in the world, and most importantly, he was Catholic. On July 25, 1554, Mary and Philip were married. The two embarked on a brief honeymoon in the countryside. When they returned to London, they rode on horseback through the streets, greeting their loyal subjects. However, not everyone was pleased with the marriage. Along the procession route, an artist had painted a large mural featuring Mary's father, Henry VIII. However, the artist had expressly painted an image of the Protestant Bible in Henry's hand, a direct snub to the new Catholic king and queen. 
Religion wasn't the only issue. Though many Londoners accepted the new Spanish king, there was some anti-Spanish sentiment quietly emerging. In fact, after Mary had announced her intention to marry Prince Philip, there had been an attempted uprising. Several nobles appealed to the masses that the empire was in danger and they needed to preserve liberty against the Spaniards. The threat was serious enough for Mary to give a speech reinforcing her loyalty to England. She proclaimed, Stand fast with your lawful prince against these rebels, and fear them not, for I assure you that I fear nothing at all. As usual, Mary's speech rallied the people to her side. Not only did her subjects cheer her on, but many even expressed a willingness to die in defense of their rightful queen. The following day, the rebellious nobles were arrested and imprisoned. The uprising was over. And now that the British public had shown their support of Philip, Mary wasted no time trying to produce an heir. While Mary appeared to be smitten by Philip, the same could not be said for him. He knew that the marriage was a political arrangement. In a private letter, one of his trusted aides wrote, the king realizes fully that the marriage was made for no fleshly consideration, but in order to cure the disorders of this country and preserve the Low Countries. In fact, neither Philip nor any of the Spaniards in his court seemed particularly fond of England or Queen Mary. They constantly complained about the weather and how ugly they found the British people. One of Philip's advisors even wrote, the queen is not at all beautiful. Small and rather flabby than fat, she is of white complexion and fair, and has no eyebrows. She is a perfect saint and dresses badly. Despite being repulsed by his new bride, Philip performed his princely duties. And by September 1554, Mary was pregnant. Her due date was scheduled for the week of May 9th. Mary's pregnancy was met with celebration throughout the country and within the court. Announcements were made all across Europe. A beautiful nursery was built for the heir-to-be. But by the end of May, there had been no birth. Mary's belly began to recede. A few weeks later, it became clear that the queen was not, in fact, pregnant, and never was. Mary had endured a false pregnancy. The symptoms of her swollen belly and break in her menstrual cycle had likely resulted from an ovarian cyst or any of her lifelong gastrointestinal illnesses. The false pregnancy was a devastating blow for Mary, one from which she never recovered, physically or mentally. The false pregnancy had set off something in Mary something she had likely repressed her entire adult life, and it sent her into a dark, depressive tailspin that would shape the future of her reign. Coming up, Mary's health rapidly declines, her marriage unravels, and her leadership takes a dark, tyrannical turn. Now back to the story. By mid-1555, 39-year-old Queen Mary was in poor health and even poorer spirits. 
The results of her false pregnancy were devastating, both physically and mentally. Unfortunately, her husband Philip was only going to exacerbate Mary's health problems. In August 1555, Philip left on a diplomatic mission to France. Within weeks of his departure, there was a great deal of gossip about Philip's behavior abroad. Rumor had it that Philip was philandering all over France. Alone in England, Mary wallowed in her misery. She concluded that the only way to cure her depression was to devote herself even more fervently to the one constant in her life, Catholicism. But instead of simply finding solace in the Bible, Mary's beliefs took on an extreme fanatical tone. After a lifetime of struggle, repressed grief, and rage, Mary seems to have snapped. Her behavior came to resemble her father's, unpredictable and autocratic. The woman who had displayed such remarkable poise began acting out in the most gruesome ways possible. Although Mary had publicly promised to let her subjects practice their respective Christian faiths in peace, several Protestants had been secretly arrested for so-called acts of heresy. At the beginning of her reign, Mary had been content to simply throw the offenders in jail. But now, that wasn't enough. One of Mary's first victims was Margaret Polly, a Protestant who denied that the Bible made specific reference to the Roman Catholic Church. Although this wasn't a particularly serious offense, Margaret had committed it at the worst possible time. On July 18, 1555, she was burned alive in a gravel pit. This act undoubtedly gave Mary a sense of power that she felt was lacking after her false pregnancy, health issues, and virtual abandonment by her husband. In her increasingly unstable environment, the only thing keeping Mary grounded was, unfortunately, burning Protestants alive. Soon, Mary's behavior drew scorn and confusion from a populace that had always embraced her. With Protestants being set on fire all over England, many began to see them as martyrs instead of heretics. But it was the conflagration of one specific man that would completely turn the tide of public opinion. Mary's mortal enemy, Thomas Cranmer. Since September 1553, the former Archbishop of Canterbury had been languishing in the Tower of London. During that time, he'd made six recantations for his various transgressions, from promoting Protestantism to conspiring to have Mary killed. After three years in prison, the 66-year-old Cranmer would make his final recantation. Afterward, he would finally be burned at the stake. Cranmer had been Mary's arch-nemesis since Mary's youth. Although the burnings of Protestants had become increasingly capricious and illogical, this one held special significance to her. In fact, aside from her ascension to the throne, this may have been the most important moment of her life. But as Thomas Cranmer stood on the pulpit with a mischievous look upon his face, it became clear that this would be no ordinary recantation. Instead of apologizing or groveling, Cranmer launched into a monologue, recanting his previous recantations. 
he declared that Protestantism, not Catholicism, was the one true Christian faith. He said that when he faced the fire, his hand would be burnt first because it had signed the blasphemous recantations. And he finished by declaring, As for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. Moments later, Cranmer was pulled from the stage and dragged to the execution area. True to his word, as the flames engulfed his body, he thrust his hand into the fire, shouting, Unworthy right hand! What should have been Mary's most satisfying act of revenge turned into another betrayal, and one that left the general public cheering for her mortal nemesis. As Thomas Cranmer burned to death, the rest of the country was soaked with rain. Lots of it. Mary's rule had been marked by an unusually storm-filled winter that decimated crops and caused starvation across England. And although this particular phenomenon was hardly Mary's fault, it was one more thing that began turning her subjects against her. With her public and personal life imploding, by the end of 1556, Mary more or less experienced a total mental breakdown. The next March, Philip finally returned to England. News of his arrival seems to have lifted Mary's spirits. Unfortunately, he was only back long enough to ask for British help in the Holy Roman Empire's war against France. After a great deal of convincing, the Royal Council agreed, and on July 6th, Philip was off to France. It was the last time he and his wife would ever see one another. Mary's decision to support her husband's war put her at direct odds with the Pope. The Pope made it explicitly clear that he wanted to negotiate a peace treaty with France and to avoid war at all possible costs. But Mary had sided with her husband rather than the Holy Father. As a result, the Pope publicly rebuked Mary. Her life had appeared to hit rock bottom until the bottom fell out. In January 1558, Mary sent word to Philip that she was six months pregnant. No one in the royal court had the heart or courage to tell the 41-year-old queen what she almost certainly knew. It was another false pregnancy. On March 30th, believing herself to be nearly due, Mary drafted her will. She stipulated that the kingdom would go to her heir and Philip would serve as regent until the child was of ruling age. By May, not only was there no child, but it appeared that Mary herself was not long for this world. She was constantly ill and growing weaker by the day. Since it was clear that Mary wouldn't produce an heir, her council decided that her half-sister Elizabeth would ascend the throne upon her death. Philip would lose any claim to England. Shortly before midnight on November 16, 1558, Mary was read her last rites. The next day she died at age 42. She had been in power for only five years. Few wept over Mary's passing, and just six hours after her death, Elizabeth was proclaimed queen. She would go on to become one of England's most beloved rulers. Elizabeth's reign would ignite a cultural renaissance and solidify Protestantism as the official religion of England. Mary's death 
was an undignified end for an intelligent, talented woman who had overcome extraordinary obstacles. Rather than being immortalized for her perseverance or integrity, it was the burning of the 300 so-called heretics that earned her her enduring nickname, Bloody Mary. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll begin our next season traveling back to ancient Rome to explore the reigns of emperors Tiberius, Caligula, and Nero. Among the many sources we used for these episodes, we found Mary Tudor, England's first queen, by Anna Whitelock, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>